Can AI fill the healthcare gaps left by the Great Resignation, enable the shift from episodic to value-based care, make care at home viable, and indicate when a patient is ready for hospice care? Well, if you ask Javion Chief Medical Officer John Fraunfelter, which I did, the answer is an emphatic yes. That's because Javion uses AI for prescriptive analytics, focusing on identifying modifiable risks and telling what to do about them. The fuzzy math inside Javion is what makes it possible. In this edition of the Health Biz Podcast, Dr. Fraunfelter shares his journey from high school calculus to medical school and on to informatics and Javion. I'm your host, David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group. Enjoy the show. And if you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe. Great. Well, Dr. John Fraunfelter, Chief Medical Officer of Javion, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you, David. Pleased to be here today. Now, Javion is a really cool company. We're going to talk about it, uh, but I want to talk about how you got there, first of all, and maybe we can start way back at the beginning and tell me what your upbringing was like, what your what your childhood was like, any, any early influences that have stuck with you. Yeah, I mean, to get into the role of physician uh, wasn't... Uh, a- inherited from uh, family expectations. I had one uncle who was a physician and lived on the other side of the country. So I I just found my own path recognizing I, I liked the combination of science and physiology and also the I, the opportunity to work with helping people uh, get better. So it, it seemed like a natural fit and I chose that path late in high school and went to college with a goal of getting into medical school. Yeah, that sounds good. Did you have any like favorite uh, favorite High school teachers, or something that sticks with you from like a class that you like to take. One of the, one of the most memorable ones everyone remembers was uh, our math teacher, who uh, she was a calculus teacher that was uh, very very strict, but uh, made college calculus like I could I could do it in my sleep. So this is before AP classes were given us college credit. Yeah, I would have had the credits. No, that's good. It's always good to have those. Those you know those the teachers can really have a formative uh, formative experience. Uh, so it's good to hear about that. So then, so you went to college, you went with the intention of going to medical school, which a lot of people do. Not a lot of people make it. They usually get weeded out, I think, in sophomore year in chemistry. You obviously made it through that. So after, you know, you went through medical school and then you were a practicing physician for a while and then moved a little bit more onto the informatics side, if I'm, if I'm reading your resume correctly. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the journey is really interesting and Certainly, it's one of those stories I never would have planned on ending up where I've arrived. Uh, it, Google Maps wouldn't get you to your destination in, in a story like this. It, when I started in academic medicine right out of residency, informatics wasn't even a thing. It was in the late 90s. Uh, the, the early electronic health record adoptions that were news items were news items because they were disasters. And then in the mid-2000s, I started getting involved in Southeast Michigan and helping to lead some of the efforts way before high-tech and meaningful use, which made it a mandate. Uh, as a result of that, I had opportunities um, that, that bred more opportunities. Success breeds success. And, uh, and I found that I enjoyed moving, moving an organization uh, into the future. I don't so much love technologies as I love the opportunity to drive change and to do something on a big scale and to impact thousands or millions of patients. And so that was, that was what got me up in the morning. It wasn't so much that I loved writing code. Got it. What do you say when, when people talk about, oh, doctors are resistant to technology? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's partly true. It depends uh, on the persona, and personas tend to gravitate to different specialties. I'll bet you find most DD docs, for example, like technology because they're very facile by their by their persona. But in, in my generation and prior to me, it isn't that we don't like technology, but we were trained in a mindset that what you learned is still true, and you trust yeah. what you know. And so technology shakes creates this disequilibrium in what and what physicians especially are trained to know and be comfortable with and we have to change our mindset to be more flexible malleable if you will uh around everything in healthcare and that includes using technology but some docs just didn't go in like that and they and they'll fight it to the end got it so, so I, was, I was sort of setting you up to say they don't mind technology. They just don't like lousy technology, of which there was a lot introduced into the, uh, into the hospitals at some point. Not by you, but, uh, you know, there's, there's some of that. It's like, it's not, I'm not against technology. You know, the big user of the iPhone and so on. But, you know, watch what I have to do here at my desk. Right, right. That's a great point. Any new technology, there's this concept of spreadability. Why did iPhones spread so fast? It's, it's usability. It makes them more efficient and makes them more effective. Those are two different concepts, but when somebody's more efficient and more effective, you're not going to have to work hard to get them to adopt something. They're going to want to. And you're right, health techno- healthcare technology has a bad reputation, well-earned, for not making us more efficient or more effective. Let's talk about Javion. I, I love the name of the company, by the way. I don't know who came up with that. Where did that come from? It's, it's like a weird thing. Like if you look at the word, you said, it doesn't look like a word, but it's obvious. It's sort of like obvious to pronounce it, assuming I am pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Uh, what is that from, Javion? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's for our founders who uh, were both uh, Indian background. And it's a, as I understand it, it's a word in Hindi that means life-giving. And it also is similar to a Latin root word, and I, I can't tell you the Latin specifics here, but also similar to a Latin-based word that also infers life uh, and life-giving. So combination of those made it really uh, a, a great name and a great fit. Yeah, well, it's not a bad place to start, plus the pronounceability. So I like I like all of that. So I mean, what does this company do other than having a cool name? Yeah. So we provide uh, this, you know this phrase artificial intelligence. We provide insights at the patient level to tell clinicians things they otherwise wouldn't know about the patient. So we not only tell them what is something true about the patient or risks about the patient, but also ways to mitigate that risk. So we get into the space of what's called prescriptive analytics that says, okay, here's a risk, so what? What should I do about it? It's the next question. So we take it to that next level of the next generation of what do I do about it? Here's the trap. So many predictive models out there today, whether they're built on true AI or they're just built on logistic regression, tell you predictive risk. The next step is you get somebody who's high risk, and then the natural instinct of an organization or a clinician is to do everything possible to reduce that risk. To understand which of those patients have risk that is modifiable is a very important question. That's a different endpoint from math from a math standpoint. And then secondly, if they're modifiable, what is it that I can do that can make the difference? That helps me to be, in the end of the day, more effective and more efficient. And I touched on that earlier. At the organizational yeah. level and the individual level, that should be the goal. So you're working on identifying those risks with the prescriptive analytics and, and especially those modifiable risks and then saying what could be done about those. Like, What would be an example of such a risk? Yeah. 
And so uh, let me just give a little bit more context. We provide a holistic um, assessment of the patient analysis that includes the clinical and the non-clinical factors. The non-clinical are what we often refer to as social determinants. I see them as vulnerabilities, as aspects or features about the patient that especially physicians rarely concern themselves with. But we know that those non-clinical factors drive approximately 60% of health outcomes, even for patients with advanced cancer. So I'll give you an example. Uh, a cancer patient in one of our oncology practices was identified as at risk for mortality in the next 30 days. This was a patient that came in, um, had some back pain, long history of, of cancer in the past, and was treated for a, a symptom related to the back pain, but they didn't pick up that there was anything more going on. When we identified the patient as at risk for mortality and then at risk for hospitalization in the next 30 days and to evaluate for recurrence of the cancer, it isn't, it isn't saying that the AI won't tell you change this med to this protocol or do this test. It is pointing a clinician in the direction where their judgment then will, will take the next step, but that pointed towards evaluate for recurrence when the clinician hadn't picked that up because the cancer was remote. Turns out that she had a recurrence of the cancer metastasis to her spinal cord, and it was evolving from back pain to um, spinal cord uh, destruction. She ended up paralyzed in the hospital and, and died uh, less than a month later. And in that scenario, the, the oncologist said, how did the machine learning know, how did the AI know that this patient was at risk? And the answer is, we don't really know all the answers because the, the yeah. math is complicated uh, and the connections are so much. But we know some of the features in, in these patients that point towards the risk. Um, in this case, it was her overall health status. I don't remember the details. But overall health status, her level of interacting, some social features, level of interacting with, with her social support network, and then also the, the symptoms of pain and recurrence. Um, that's an example. I mean, we've got tons of examples, yeah. but that's how, that's a little sure. how it works. Okay. Okay. So John, it sounds very impressive, you know, what you're doing. I know you've also uh, been with the company for a while. The company's been around, you know, what were you able to do on day one versus what you can do now? What capabilities have been added? Yeah. As a company, we've, uh, from day one, when I joined, uh, we had a few models or use cases at that time, we called them vectors because it was a direction of the math pointing towards an outcome. But vectors is a mathy term, so we got away from that. But we had a few use cases, and we had some uh, some learnings at that time around uh, acquisition of data. Uh, the data science even then was very good. Um, in the in the journey of the last several years, what we've done is is um, first of all understand what's happening in healthcare and point new models, which we can stand up very quickly towards what's relevant. An example is when COVID hit and the whole country shut down, I remember it was like Friday the 13th, I think in March, 2020. Yeah. Within a month, we had a COVID vulnerability map that was mapped uh, down to the block group level, just based upon social vulnerabilities with a respiratory viral illness leading to hospitalization or death as the endpoint within, within a few weeks. We also had uh, an individualized for our customers because we had we had their contact information. We had vulnerability lists so they could contact and reach out to the top five percent and practice extreme isolation and make sure that they were getting their meds and things that people were reacting to rather than being proactive about. 
And we had two other, I won't go into the details, we had two other things as well. Yeah. Very quickly, because we were paying attention to what was happening and our customers were asking for, um, we've expanded, um, we started in the hospital side, we've expanded into the pop health space. Uh, and again, being very sensitive to what's happening in the market, which is moving to value-based care, moving to healthcare at home. And and uh, so we continue to sharpen our focus around where the challenges are in healthcare. Um, and, and don't rest on our laurels. So you've talked about you know, AI and, and machine learning to some extent and understand that you know, Javion is prides itself on being an AI company. You know, what does AI mean in this context? And you know, how is the term, you'll tell me how it's used, how, how is it sometimes abused? Because I hear people tossing it around quite a bit, even when they're not really dealing with AI, as I understand. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm not a data scientist, so I'm going to get, somebody's going to critique my answer here, but I'll try that's fine. I'll give a lay answer. How's that? Um, predictive modeling is often used uh, as as equivalent to machine learning and artificial intelligence, and that's where I would say it absolutely isn't. So, predictive modeling is taking a, a data set, and then with a with a finite endpoint with an endpoint over here, what are some of the variables that are rising to drive towards that math endpoint? So. This is how many predictive algorithms, let's take a risk for readmission, and there's a LACE score. And you can say a LACE score, which is predicting risk for readmission, is is actually right about 50% of the time, even in the high-risk population. Well, that's not good. Yeah. People don't really look at that, though. But the problem is it's fixed. It's based upon a set of variables that are that have to be present, they have to be accurate, or you just mess the whole thing up. It's the classic garbage in, garbage out. The machine learning and AI, the way we we have built it, allows for this concept, I'm going to throw another term out there, fuzzy math. In other words, we can infer things that we may not know. We can actually interpret something to be true that isn't even told to us. Let's say a patient is re, uh, admitted repeatedly for COPD. We've <laughs> This is a story where like, they argued with us until we, until we went and looked in the chart together on that patient. Um, we said the patient was at risk uh, for hospitalization due to heart failure. And there was no heart failure as a problem in the chart. And they're like, well, look at this. The patient's got all these COPD admissions. Well, four years earlier, and we did not have this echo result, but four years earlier, the patient had a low ejection fraction, had heart failure diagnosed, fell through the cracks, continued to be admitted to the hospital and to the emergency room, primarily the emergency room for COPD. But we identified holistically what was true about the patient without being told that by some specific data point. And that's the power of artificial intelligence, is it, is it gathers enough information it can draw conclusions in a non, the best way I can say is a nonlinear way, not based upon A with a multiplier of 2 and B with a multiplier of 1.5 and, and so on, getting to some sort of score. It's much more sophisticated than that. It requires large amounts of data, yep. though. Yeah, you know, part of what can be a challenge with AI is that some of these things, you know, when you're talking about predictive model, you can say, okay, well, I gave, you know, this variable got this weight and that variable got that weight, and then you can see what it is. With AI, it's kind of by its nature a black box. And so you can't always go back and say, aha, it was this thing and I can understand, I can understand it. But you can, you can see whether it's, whether it's working or not. So I think that's one of the things that makes it, uh, makes it, makes it harder to, to understand by its nature. Let's talk about, you've made some, uh, some predictions, uh, John, a lot of them AI-related here, and I just want to remind you uh, of some of them and ask you perhaps to, to share 
uh, what you're thinking. I'll, I'll just I'll just read off a few of the predictions here, and you can comment them, comment on them as you will. So one first three are about AI. So one is AI fills the gaps left by the Great Resignation. Another is that AI enables a shift from episodic to value-based care. Another AI enables continued growth of care in the home. And the final one is not AI specific, but is about data. Data will drive action to address health inequities. So I thought this is a, you know, a good set of uh, predictions, obviously obviously related to some of the things that uh, you do at JVON. But you know, what were you thinking uh, there? What are some of the takeaways that we can derive? I have no idea what I was thinking. No, I'm kidding. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, and, and depending on how long we, or how, dig we wanna, how deep we want to dig into Sure. Um, the great resignation is, is, is a real thing. It's going to continue through all of 2022 and beyond. So a couple of ways here. If we can provide insights, so this is just intelligence on patients, provide insights about patients uh, and serve it up to the clinicians instead of them having to manually collect all that data, that's one of, one of the ways that they're more efficient. So this is a, a direct space that we play in. Another adjacent space, not the one that we play in, but but still has a role for artificial intelligence, is in a lot of the automated patient uh, digital health solutions uh-huh. have have a chatbot function, and there's AI that drives some of the interactions between them and the patients, and it 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 covers, you could say, a significant percentage of otherwise interactions that would never occur or that would have been manual before now. And so you can automate a lot of those and then at the right point escalates to a clinician. So the case manager is getting the patient that actually needs an intervention by a person right then. That's filling some of the gaps because you have shortages across the board in pop health on the inpatient side. Anything where we can automate some of what was yesterday done manually helps with with the shortage of staffing. You know, on that one, I, I... I uh, will say that even though I'm not against technology and I'm not a doctor even, um, I, I can't stand you know chat bots or in fact chat in general because it turns out if there's anything that I actually need help with, by the time I get through the bot and then to the person, they're like, oh, that's you have to call for that one. <laughs> and you know, I wonder on the um, and a lot of times this has to do with customer service issues as opposed to like a, a, a medical issue there, but. You know, I understand from the standpoint of the employer who's like, I can't, you know, I need 100 people and I only have 50. So what am I going to do that we need to kind of triage that? But I mean, is this ever a good patient experience when this happens? Or is it just uh, you, you get to a, a real person faster if you need it? Yeah, it's highly variable. I mean, I'll confess, I too have been, I would say I've been immunized against paying attention to those automated texts. So Random yeah. or standardized automated text is not driven by AI. It's just automation, and, and that pushes people away. So I think to become more sensitive or person aware of, of what the interaction should be is a role AI yeah. has to play. And that makes, makes it more relevant to the patient, and they're more likely to engage. So there are scenarios, yeah. especially with chronic diseases, where touching them in a digital way helps to get them more engaged. And again, yeah. as with any of these things, the litmus test—the litmus test is twofold. Before you deploy it, it's first, does the model work? Is it predicting correctly? Okay, that's great, but it's—it's it's, that's statistically important. But relevant clinically is the outcome. So we need to be looking at: mm-hmm. does it make things better? No matter how good the model is, if it's not improving the outcome, then we need to take a hard look at it. 
So some of them are, I mean, this is the space that's highly variable right now. And there's a lot, and you're absolutely right, automation can, can make us go, as Aldous Huxley said, make us go backwards faster. Yeah, that's a good one. Good quote. Uh, so I think I understand, you know, great resignation, great people are gone. So we need to, we need somebody to fill in that's not going to complain, um, you know, or have a, a, a shift when they need to go home or not have to worry about, uh, you know, catching COVID. Value-based care, I can see that as well, not just the episodic, but more of an opportunity to be able to, you know, to check in at, at will. Help me understand this one about the growth of care in the home. Now, that has certainly been a big theme in general. Uh, why is AI related to that? Well, it, it's largely related to understanding, I would say two things. One, understanding risk for patients. And those, those risks or vulnerabilities might be, again, non-clinical, or they may be clinical. So you take a patient who's uh, about to be admitted to the hospital and they qualify for hospital at home. Yeah. We also need to understand, is this patient, because they're going to have to engage with technology if this is going to work. Do they have um, uh, good internet access at home? Do they have social mm-hmm. support? Because you're almost like crowdsourcing when they have a bowel movement and they can't help themselves, like their daughter, yeah. their next door neighbor's got to come and help them. So understanding social support. How are they going to get meals and the logistics around that? Those are things where AI can actually help to understand. We know, we have this level of detail to understand social vulnerabilities and risks to say, you know, clinically they meet criteria, but you've got some social areas that are really patient yeah. at risk and you need to make sure you address those as well. And then they can be at home in a more, in a more safe uh, path trajectory towards the outcome that everybody wants, which is they recover. The other First, yeah, the other way is as patients are managed and they're pretty sick at home, understanding risk to the patient where they're on one of two paths. They're either deteriorating and likely to need admission to the hospital and to understand that, or also not only deteriorating, but their life expectancy is so, so short, we need to really look at other options like palliative care or hospice. And oftentimes, cancer yeah. patient they, they end up there too fast and die in the hospital and nobody wanted that and, yeah and uh, so those are those are a couple of areas where AI can help with transitioning patients and having a better experience at home and avoiding the hospital you know there, there's a couple of examples that you've given where if, if anything AI is kind of like more objective and takes the human out of the picture and may may result that way in taking away some of the emotion or some of the biases. So the kind of too late ending up in palliative care or hospice is, is a common thing. And a lot of times it's because people don't want to have the conversation or you think you're giving up or whatever it may be. And actually having a program that just sort of like looks at things and saying, yeah, these patients look like patients that, you know, should be in hospice is worthwhile. And then, and then maybe it allows the individual, hopefully it won't be a bot that tells them that. Right. Uh, you know, but it allows allows their caregivers um, and and providers to to have that conversation. It struck me also that when you were talking about kind of at the beginning of the COVID shutdown, and you you know there's a ton of fear and not a lot of information. You know, if you go and do this kind of mapping based on what you what you have and the sort of pattern of the respiratory illness and and movement and so on, you you could actually get down to that being pretty useful, even without having a real model of how, you know, COVID itself worked. So you didn't have to have, for example, the bias about whether it was, uh, you know, whether it was airborne or not, you know, where people are saying it, it, it wasn't. But you don't need to know that. The AI sees that, you know, this, this type of uh, 
pattern is leading to people being in the in the hospital and dying, you know, that's enough to to know. So it, it strikes me it may be useful uh, in those ways. It it is. It's surprising. AI should tell us something that is not always intuitive. If it just tells me something that clinically is intuitive or I already know. Yeah. So right. it should see things, uh, uh, use enough data to see and inform me of something that I didn't think of or didn't realize. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, and sometimes it's used for trivial purposes. Like you see, it's used for like nutrition. And I asked somebody about this once and I said, does it always say just get the broccoli? I mean, and they said, no, no, no. But, you know, I think 99% of the time it does unless you're allergic to broccoli. So, all right, let's shift away from uh, Javion and back to the to the personal side. Do you have any time for uh, any books, any, reading any books, anything you would recommend? Ah, well, I confess I I listen to audio books um, because I, I have some a couple of acres of yard I have to mow. And so I throw an audio yeah. there when I'm driving to the airport or whatever. So I don't, this has been really eye opening for me, but I'm not sure I would recommend it. It's an older book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was in the Russian work camps and he wrote a, an amazing book back in the seventies. that kind of opened the eyes of the West to Russia. It's called the Gulag Archipelago. Now yeah. it's not light reading. So it's really no. it's pretty profound, but it, it's what I'm. It's what I'm reading right now or listening to. So I, um, I'll spare you the details because it's it's. Intense. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good one. You know, um, I was going to say, you know, there's few words harder to spell than Solzhenitsyn. It makes archipelago look easy. To yeah, spell. but um, but that is that is quite a profound uh, book. So you got to make sure you, you might need to put some artificial intelligence on your mower to make sure you don't ride <laughs> off into some and send into the tree or or into the gulag. Right, you right. know, when you're. Uh, I feel like you're in the woods camp some days. The, the other one, this is more probably relevant, Human Compatible um, by Stuart Russell is actually on, I think it's on this you know Twitter feed of Elon Musk's hot, top recommended yeah. books. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, it talks about the role of AI today and in the future. And it's, it's also pretty eye-opening, but it's actually something I would recommend. Yeah, good. Well, I like the audiobooks because the idea there is you, you also have time to you know squeeze in the latest episode of the Health of His podcast as well. I'll have to catch that. <laughs> Good. Well, John Fraunfelter, Chief Medical Officer at Javion, thanks so much for your time today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you, David. Appreciate your time. All right. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, President of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.